Please stand as I read today's passage. Actually, I'm going to read the first movement of the passage, not the next two movements, which I'm just going to touch lightly on, and then the final one. But we're in 1945, Luke 19, verse 45, and I'll read through the end of the chapter and then pick it up in the next chapter, verse 19. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. And then in the next chapter, beginning at verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Jesus is ever fascinating and we're going to see that in several passages this morning. One of the books that has influenced me a lot is uh, uh, my favorite book on the life of Jesus. It's, it's by Philip Yancey, and it's called The Jesus I Never Knew. And early in the book, he says this. He said, Jesus, I found, bore little resemblance to the Mr. Rogers figure I had met in Sunday school. For one thing, he was far less tame in my prior image, Jesus' personality matched that of a Star Trek Vulcan. He remained calm, cool, and collected as he strode like a robot among the excitable human beings. This is not what I found portrayed in the Gospels. Other people affected Jesus deeply. Obstinacy frustrated him. Self-righteousness infuriated him. Simple faith thrilled him. Indeed, he seemed more emotional and spontaneous than the average person, not less. More passionate, not less. The more I studied Jesus, the more difficult it became to pigeonhole him. He said little about the Roman occupation, the main topic of conversation of his countrymen, and yet he took up a whip to drive petty profiteers from the Jewish temple. He urged obedience to the Mosaic law while acquiring the reputation of a lawbreaker. He could be stabbed by sympathy for a stranger, yet turn on his best friend with a flinty rebuke, get behind me, Satan. He had uncompromising views on rich men and loose women, yet both types enjoyed his company. His extravagant claims about himself kept him at the center of controversy, but when he did something truly miraculous, he tended to hush it up. If Jesus had never lived, 
we would not have been able to invent him. He is just the most remarkable human being, the most magnetic and compelling to ever walk the face of the planet. By the way, this book is in our bookstore and in our library, The Jesus I Never Knew. Now, we're going to see some of the, the, the fascinating life and the personality and the person of Jesus today. This is the situation. Jesus is going up to Jerusalem for Passover, the big celebration of the year for the Jews. 250,000 people from all over the empire, Jews from the empire, are crowding into this city of 60,000. Some of you who have been to the old city of Jerusalem can imagine how crowded that would be with a quarter million people. Now, this is Jesus' final Passover in Jerusalem because he is going there to die, to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as he makes his way up there, he arrives at the top of Mount of Olives, which is the mountain east of the city. And there on what we celebrate as Palm Sunday, uh, he is placed on a donkey and crowds are gathering and they're welcoming him and singing hallelujahs and hosannas and it's the triumphal entry. And he goes from the Mount of Olives down a steep incline, it's quite steep there today, to the Kidron Valley before he begins to make his way back up to the Temple Mount. Before he gets up to the Temple Mount, he pauses we see this in the previous passage that we did not read. He pauses, he looks over the city, and he begins to weep and to cry out to his Father in heaven, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And I just could not help but think this week in the context of how our vision as a church is that Houston becomes a city of God. And just would wonder if we would ever cry out over our city the way Jesus cried out over the city of Jerusalem. Oh, Houston, Houston. And we think about the crying needs and challenges and heartbreaks of our city, or we moved by the heart of God for our city. Now, when we think to talk about cities, we're not talking about buildings. We're talking about people, precious people all over our great city. Jesus' heart went out to them. They largely rejected him. And there was great heartache and suffering, and he wept over his city. So he pauses to weep over the city, and then he continues that trek up to the Temple Mount. Now, the Temple Mount, picture it, being a high part of the city, the highest part of the city, and then it's built up on this mound that has four big walls around it that kind of buttress the dirt up, and it's about 60 yards high. We see it from time to time on the news on the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall. That is one of four walls around the 35-acre temple complex up high. Now, today, there's a mosque up there, but in Jesus' day, there was this magnificent Herod-rebuilt temple of God. Now, as Jesus went up the stairs to the Temple Mount during Passover, I mean, here is the most sacred place on planet Earth, the place that God had ordained for the people of, of Israel to meet with God. This is the focal point. If there's one point on the planet localizing and focusing on the presence of God, this is it. I mean, they had the holy place, and then they had the holy of holies, and only the high priest went and, and sacrifice was made for the people. 
This is a sacred area. Jesus goes up there during the Passover celebration, and, 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 he's, and, and all he sees is, is a bunch of merchants and, and, and changing money and crying out prices, and it's like a flea market. And he is deeply moved with emotion and burdened for his Father's glory and honor. And, and, and the Father apparently puts this Old Testament Isaiah quote from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 56, 7, on his heart. And in 1945, we read, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves, a den of robbers. It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer. Now, by the way, all through the Gospels, Jesus is referring to the Old Testament. All through the Gospels, he is quoting the Old Testament. Clearly, Jesus knew his Bible. He studied his Bible. He loved his Bible. He had memorized much of the Bible. And he had complete confidence in the Bible. Every time in the Gospels, every time that Jesus refers to the Old Testament Scriptures, whether or not it's referring to Adam and Eve, Jonah and the well, or whatever he refers to, it is with complete confidence and authority. If God said it, that settles it, I believe it. When he says, it is written, then that settles things. And by the way, Jesus' attitude towards Scripture becomes our attitude towards Scripture. That is why we have complete confidence in the authority, the veracity, the truthfulness, the power of the Word of God. Okay, he says, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. It's a house of prayer. It is not primarily a place of worship, as important as that is. It is not primarily a place of sacrifice, as important as that is. It is not primarily a place of hearing the preaching of the Word of God, as important as that is. It is not primarily a place of teaching your children, of studying the Torah, of helping the needy, of having the priests do their priestly duties. It is a house of prayer. My house is a house of prayer. That is its purpose. That is its, its passion. That is what it's all about. That is the lifeblood. Now, if the lifeblood of the one temple, the place of God in the Old Testament era, the temple is a house of prayer, does, not, does that not suggest that for every local congregation, every local temple of God, 1 Corinthians calls us, and for every single individual Christian, which we're also called temples of God, should we not be houses of prayer? Every church, every individual, that our passion and our priority is to be prayer. This is our lifeblood. This is how we live. This is how we do life. We do it by prayer. We do it in constant, continual conversation with the Father. That means for you and me, that probably when we get up, unless you're an extreme night person, then it's when you get, go to sleep at 1 a.m., but for most of us, is when you wake up, you prioritize getting alone with your father and just being with him and, and letting him love you and loving him back and, and opening the Bible. And you don't read the Bible. You pray through the Bible. And you're talking to the Lord as you're reading through the Bible. And you're giving thanks. And you're interceding for people in your family, in your small group, in your church, maybe even your pastor. And you're crying out for your city. I mean, if this is our vision, 
that Houston become a city of God, then certainly we're praying for it. Because if God has called you to Wood's Edge, and this is the vision He's given us, it's the vision He's given you. You want to see Houston become, for the glory of God, a great city of God. And, and this becomes our purpose and, and our passion, our priority. I, I appreciate what Luke Crane said earlier. He didn't know what I was preaching on this week, but he said, our passion at Wood's Edge is prayer. And it is. This is the story. In 2002, Wood's Edge was nine years old, had been in rented facilities for our entire nine-year history. We're about a year away of moving for the first time into our own campus. And we had a fair emphasis on prayer. Four of us who kind of lead in the church, much smaller church then, went to the beach at um, Brazosport, I think it was, for a retreat before the coming ministry season. During that time, we felt that we need to move prayer to be the priority of our church in the coming season. And uh, we just, it was clear to all four of us. It needs to be the priority of the coming season. I went out for a run just after that, and I felt during my run that God gave me three or four. I'm about to fall off that thing. Uh, gave me three or four. I'm getting so excited. Three or four specific things. Jeff, when you go back, call the church to three days of prayer and fasting. Jeff, start writing a daily devotional all fall about prayer. And I began doing that. That's where my devotional started that I send out. Uh, Jeff, you start going to the prayer service, this little prayer service that Greg Johnson, our worship pastor at the time, had started on Thursday night. You, Jeff, you start going to that. Uh, we, we, did, we changed our staff meeting from a business meeting to a prayer meeting, and it's still, 13 years later, a prayer meeting. We began doing a number of things, and our church began to change in every area. When the water level in a lake rises, all the boats on the lake rise. When the level of prayer in a church rises, all the ministries in the church begin to rise. Our church began to change. We became uh, on a journey to become a house of prayer. It wasn't just for a season. It was for a lifetime that God was calling us to become a house of prayer. After the first service, I met uh, a dear pastor from uh, Uganda. After, uh, the second service, he's sitting right over there, a dear pastor from Niger. And in many parts of the world, they do not have the affluence and the education and the lack of persecution of America, relative persecution. And so they get it that we are desperate for God and we better pray. I guarantee you, if we were living in Syria today and your life was on the line, you would know how desperate for God you are. And you could, you could not not pray. But we've got a challenge. We're in the United States. We're affluent, particularly here in the suburbs. We don't have our lives on the line yet. And uh, it is a little bit harder for us to understand the biblical call to the priority and the passion of prayer, that you are desperate for prayer. All through the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, over the last year, we have been seeing that he was a man of prayer. He just always was praying and talking to his father. It was the privilege of his life. Jesus is showing us how to live as a man. It is in a continual conversation with the father. And then if we went on to read the second volume of Luke's two-volume work, the book of Acts, we would see the same thing, that the early church, they were devoted to prayer. Quote, they were devoted, okay, devoted, uh, passionate, um, uh, uh, focused upon, uh, prioritizing. They were devoted to prayer. Devoted. And every kingdom advance in the book of Acts is prayer. 
Prayer is when we worship God, we love God, we give thanks to God. Prayer is when we confess our sin to God, when we receive his forgiveness. Prayer is when we are like David in the Old Testament. We inquire of God, we ask, and we shut up and listen. Prayer is when we call out to God for our own needs and for the needs of people that we love and care about. Prayer is when we, we call out to God to, 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 to pour out his spirit on our church and our city and our country and the world. Prayer is the privilege of human life because you're talking with God. And it is where the real power is. You access omnipotence. In the United States, the church world that most of us grew up in, prayer is more of a preliminary activity until you get down to the real work of preaching or studying or organizing or discussing or working. Friends, prayer is not a preliminary work. It's the real work. It's the main work. It's the greater work. When you go to prayer, you are doing the real work. The most influential church in America on prayer is a church in Brooklyn, New York. I've been there several times. It's pastored by Jim Cimbala. He's written a marvelous book, The Story of Brooklyn Tabernacle, called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. That book also is in our library in Portable 2 and in our bookstore through those days. I've read it several times. Jim Cimbala, former basketball player at Connecticut, went to pastor this small little church, struggling church in Brooklyn, tough area, crack cocaine everywhere, heroin every day, everywhere. They were struggling financially. Hardly anybody was coming. You know, people were dying around them. He was so discouraged. This is what he prayed to God. This is what he wrote about those early days. He said, I despaired at the thought that my life might slip by without seeing God show himself mightily on our behalf. Carol and I didn't want to merely mark time. I longed and cried out for God to change everything. Me, the church, our passion for people, our praying. One day I told the Lord that I would rather die. Can I, can I say that again? One day I, said, I told the Lord that I would rather die than merely tread water throughout my career in the ministry, always preaching about the power of God, the power of the Word and, and, and prayer, but never seeing it. I abhorred the thought of just having more church services. I hungered for God to break through in our lives and ministry. Men, do you hunger for God to break through in your life, in your family, and in your ministry? You are the leader of your, your family. This is your generation, your only time to be on planet Earth. Is it okay for you to be born in the 50s or 60s or 70s or whenever you're born, to live and die and to see your land, your society get so bad that in your lifetime, by 2015, there had been 57 million babies aborted? And that in your lifetime, divorce was so epidemic, it was just as bad in the church as outside the church. And there was alcoholism with teenagers, and there was suicide, and there was human trafficking, there was slavery in your city, and all kinds of garbage going on. Is it okay for you, men, 
to live and die and bequeath that kind of a country and land and culture to your children and your grandchildren. Is that okay with you? Are we, in fact, not desperate here in the United States, in this godless land that doesn't even know what marriage is all about? Is it okay for you to live and die and be content with making a nice, pleasant income and having a nice, comfortable retirement? Friends, I'm here to tell you that is not okay with me. And I am, I'm feeling like Jim Simula that I do not want to live and die without saying a work of God in my lifetime. Church, hear me this morning. This will not happen unless we prioritize prayer and become a house of prayer like God has called us to be across the United States. I love you guys. I love you guys. You've got hearts for God. But guys, it's a little bit of a challenge to live in our affluent society. We can go watch a movie on prayer, but will we get on our knees and pray and call out to God, oh God, would you please save our city? Lord, would you please close down the largest abortion center in America on, on Interstate 45 on the Gulf Freeway? Would you please, Lord God, sweep revival through our land so that you and I won't live and die? Could, you, could it ever enter your mind, God, I would rather die than not see a great work of God in my lifetime? Could that ever come into your mind? I hope so. I hope so. Because of your zeal and passion for the glory of God, just like Jesus in that temple. My house shall be a house of prayer. What does that mean? Well, that means every day you're going to be meeting with the Lord. It is going to be the most important thing you do that day. Whatever else you do that day. You may not even brush your teeth that day, but you're going to meet with the Lord. It becomes the priority. And your groups, you're praying. Uh, you're on the phone with somebody and they mention some need. You don't say, I'll pray for you. You say, hey, let's just pray, pray right now. You're in the lobby with somebody, they express some need. Uh, they, they, you, just, you don't tell them. I, I, we never say, I'm going to pray for you. You know, if you're just in an emergency, I guess you could. But, but you pause right there, put your hand on their shoulder, and pray for them. We got prayer partners after every service. We got prayer cards that Luke, Luke uh, Crane talked about this morning. We got a prayer chain. There are hundreds of people will pray for you about whatever. We got a prayer service. And, and, and by the way, that is the best service at Wood's Edge. This morning, leading our, our worship, uh, Dandy over here who goes here, Eunice, who's a dear friend of our, our church, Eunice Rodriguez. Eunice and another young man were leading our prayer service on Wednesday night. And if you were here, I am sure that you, like me, felt that your heart was just about to explode out of your chest because the presence of God and the power of God were so strong, weren't they, Victor? It was so strong. Our best service is Wednesday night. If you don't want to, you know, experience the presence of God like that, then stay away. But, you know, if you want to experience it, 7 o'clock on Wednesdays, it's our best service. The first Wednesdays, uh, we gather together and pray over our city and pray over our land. Uh, we want to be a house of prayer. Why? Because you need it. Your family needs it. Man, there's cancer left and right, and there's divorce left and right, and there's all kind of needs, and our city needs it, our country needs it, and the whole world needs it. So we want, want to see a breakthrough from God, so we cry out to God. Oh, God. Oh, God, please pour out your spirit upon us. We long for a breakthrough from God. My house, would you say it with me? My house shall be a house of prayer. Say it with me. My house shall be a house of prayer. This is the main thing. This is the great privilege. This is the real power. Prayer.
Well, I took all the time. <laughs> Almost. Real briefly. A couple of other good passages. And then uh, 19, he's asked about uh, the passage I read earlier. You know, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And, and you got to keep in mind, you know, if Russia was over us, you know, we wouldn't want to be paying taxes to Russia. And, and they did not want to be paying taxes to the Roman Empire. And they thought, well, they could trap him if they said, should we pay taxes? Because if he said, yes, pay taxes, the people wouldn't like it. But if he said, don't pay taxes, the Romans might arrest him. So they thought they had him trapped. And he, and he just said, uh, well, show me a denarius. Show me the coin. Okay, whose inscription is that? Whose image is on that coin? Caesar. Well, let Caesar have what is Caesar's. And you give to God what is God's. Where is the image of God? You and me. People. We, bear, we are the image of God in the, on the planet. We are the image bearers. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Let him have his old taxes. But render to God what is God's. That is, give your whole life to him. Surrender your life to him. He made you. He loves you. He sent his son to die for you. That's why you would do that, because he is your God. Because you need him. Give to God the things that are God's, everything about you. Your time, your talent, your treasure, your tongue, especially your tongue, your body, your, your home, your apartment, your car, your, your, your resources, your gifts, your relationships, your network, your influence. Give to God all that you are and all that you have because of his great love for you. Let me give you just one small example in closing. In 1857, there was a Scottish man. The Scots had such a noble heritage, and I'm not Scottish, but for those of you guys who are, uh, this Scottish man by the name of Thomas McClellan, on his 20th birthday, he decides, God, I'm going to give my whole life to you. And he writes out a prayer. He prays this prayer and records it for a future day. And by the way, uh, he began a business that uh, multiplied, and God blessed, and, and it, it became the McClellan Foundation, and it is probably the largest Christian philanthropy in the United States, based out of Tennessee, the McClellan Foundation, given about $500 million away from the cause of the gospel in the last four, 40 or 50 years. It began with Thomas McClellan, and the real story is not his wealth or his generosity, but his surrender of all that he had to God. This is what he prayed. He said, O God of heaven, record it in the book of thy remembrances that from henceforth I am thine forever. I renounce all former lords that have had dominion over me and consecrate all that I am and all that I have, the faculties of my mind, the members of my body, my worldly possessions, my time, and my influence over others, all to be used entirely for thy glory. And that was his legacy. He wrote that prayer, prayed that prayer when he was 20 years old on his birthday. He reaffirmed it on his 50th birthday and then again on his 70th birthday. And this became the legacy of his, of his children and grandchildren to the, to, to the now five generations. Church, I don't know if you are already part of a legacy like that. If not, let it begin with you. Let it begin with you. You write out this kind of a prayer of surrender. Record it and make it become, this is the way uh, our family does life. We are all in for Jesus Christ because he is our great Savior. All in. Church, what have we seen this morning? We have seen this surrender, render to God the things that are God's, but primarily I have focused on the call for us at Woods Edge and every one of us at Woods Edge to become a house of prayer.
God wants to use us in that way. God wants us to help turn the tide of how the American church does church. To say how desperate we really are and to see God do great works. What does this mean for you? What does this mean for you? I do not know. Ask God. Sometime today, maybe during communion, maybe later today, get along with God. Lord, you've sent me to this church and that pastor up there is just a maniac about house of prayer. So if you've called me to this place and we're a house of prayer, what does that mean for me, for my life? And listen and see what he puts on your heart. Stand with me, please. Church, if you're here this morning and you've never, if you're here this morning, you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, he loves you. He sent his son to die on a cross, and when he died on that cross, he paid for all your sin. Trust, trust him as your Savior. Receive him as your Savior. Just say to him now, Jesus, I need a Savior. And he'll save you. He'll save you. Lord, show us what it means to be a house of prayer. Show, show every one of us what it means. And oh God, oh God, I pray with my dear brothers and sisters at Woods Edge, would you please do a great work in our church, in our lives, in our families, in our city, in our country for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.